Similar to a well-tuned automobile, a guitar requires the same level of attention to perform at its very best. No matter how expensive your guitar may be, we will treat you and your instrument with the utmost respect. Call 920-723-1733 or visit jeffsguitar.com. Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Ford Atkinson, we love guitars. The attorneys at Jingris, Thompson & Walks have had the honor of receiving numerous awards for their work both in and outside the courtroom. But just as important as receiving accolades for being skilled attorneys, it's equally important to give back to the community in which they live and work. If you want a personal attorney that can help you in so many different areas, they've got them. They're in Eau Claire, Madison, Milwaukee, and Waukesha. They're easy to reach. GTWlawyers.com. Welcome to another podcast at SliceOffice.com, brought to you by the Operating Engineers, Local 139, and the Madison Teamsters, Local 695. John Nichols from the Capital Times joins us this morning. Uh, John, in the end, Sheila Stubbs, who was thought to be a very popular assembly person, uh, only got two votes to head up Human Services for Dane County. This mm-hmm. is what mm-hmm. ran last night on Channel 3. They've been inconsistent in all of their ways. But again, I want you to know that I am optimistic. That's all you got? You take away one job? That's why I went to school. I have three degrees. I am more than qualified. And I know God gave me this job. I won't stop. I've been fighting all my life. Stubbs was not without supporters. Several community members spoke in favor of her appointment as director of Dane County Human Services. Ahead of tonight's meeting, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi also stood by his nominee despite the controversy, calling her highly capable with a resume that speaks for herself. Now, several supervisors voiced their respect for Stubbs and her political experience, but ultimately said it was a different skill set. Some went as far as to say they consider her a friend and felt bad about denying her appointment, but felt it was necessary. All right. So when uh, Representative Stubbs said, God gave me this job, uh, I would imagine (laughs) some of those county board members feel that Joe Parisi thinks he's God, but he's not God. And this went up in flames. It really did go up in flames. Look, it was a bad circumstance for everybody involved. I mean, that's that's the important thing to understand. Um, Shelia Stubbs is a popular State representative. She served, I think, eight terms on the county board, and uh, has been elected and reelected uh, to the legislature with huge margins, always with great ease. And so she's she's certainly uh, a popular political figure with a lot of experience. And when Parisi decided to put her into this position, now you can debate whether that was whether she was the right pick or the wrong pick, people will, you know, take their stance on that. But when he decided to put her in this position, he needed to realize that he was doing something that was a little different than what we have usually done in the past in Dane County. He was putting a political figure into a department head position in charge of the most important department appointed position in Dane County. And if he was going to do that, he needed early on to do a much better job of making the case for why that was needed, why that was so. And and I don't necessarily think that he couldn't have done that. I think it's within the realm to say sometimes you do choose a 
someone who's got a background in politics because that's the right person to head an agency that is so big and is doing all sorts of things, especially if they've got, you know, lots of other people working with them. Um, we have, we see that at the federal level all the time, right? I mean, people coming out of political runs taking over, you know, cabinet positions, Pete Buttigieg at, um, you know, transportation and, and, uh, you know, other folks, you know, members of Congress going into Jennifer, Gr- Jennifer, Jennifer Granholm. Yeah, sure. Well, Hillary, yeah. let me, Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Hillary Clinton going to the State Department. Now, you know, she'd not been an ambassador or something like that. And yet you can make the case that she had certainly a, a heck of a lot of experience, much of that in the U.S. Senate. So this is the, what should have happened up front. Instead, um, what happened was, that Parisi announced the, the appointment, and it was announced in this sort of vague way where it wasn't clear whether Shulia Stubbs was going to leave her assembly seat. And that created a whole conflict up front. And I think people got you know, into their corners, and it ended up, I, I think this, this nomination was derailed from very, very early on. And I think that was, I will say, I think it was unfair to Shulia Stubbs because as a result, you ended up in a situation where instead of having, you know, kind of a set course where you could talk about, you know, why she's the right person, have serious hearings, um, everybody had their backup from, you know, day one. And end result was that you had this, this finish, which I don't think anyone should be happy with. I don't think this ended well for the county executive. I don't think it ended well for the county board. I don't think it ended well for Shelia Stubbs. I don't think it ended well for the community. So, you know, the end result. Oh, I'd rather be it. I'd rather be in the county board's position than Parisi's, and I'll tell you why. They they emasculated him. They made uh, him look weak, and they've got the numbers, and he doesn't. <laughs> am I, am I, I'm, I'm talking well, about from. I'm not talking about from an ethical stance or who I'm siding with. I'm just saying they emasculated him. Well, here's the interesting thing about it. Did they not? You're right when they, they well, let me, let me offer my, my general agreement with you. Um, they, this is the interesting thing. They have 30, more than 30 members, right? 37, I believe. And um, there's a lot of people, and usually, because there are so many people on the board, um, it's hard to see it as an entity, right? Um, you know, we see it, it, it doesn't get a lot of media coverage. Um, it doesn't get a lot of, um, you know, the individual members don't get a lot of platform. Even the chairman of the county board, Patrick Miles, is not particularly well known, right? And, and so historically, the county executive, going back to, you know, you and I remember these days back in the early 70s. George Reinke. George Reinke. But it was the county executive that everybody knew, right? And the board kind of less so. And I think a lot of people forgot. Maybe even the county executive forgot that the county board is the legislative body of Dane County. And even though it has all these members, and even though they're not paid much, and even though most people don't know who they are, they have the ability, they have the power to say yes and no to his appointments. And this is something that Parisi needed to recognize from the start, that you can't you know, steamroll something like this. If there is a conflict, right, if there's a debate about an appointment, even a very good appointment or even an appointment that that is certainly one you can make the case for, you do have to make the case. And I understand that a lot of things, you know, 
local government level kind of go by rope. They go, you know, they you know things are going to happen in a certain way. You expect them to follow that pattern. The second that he saw that this was becoming a difficult situation, right, that, that there was, there was going to be some challenge here, the right thing to do at that point is to, you know, kind of reposition, figure out, okay, how do I get this through, right? What are the, what are the moves that need well, to be taken? I don't think he's and learned, I didn't see that happen. I, I don't think he's learned his lesson because he's whining in the paper this morning that Heidi Wegleitner was asking for information on the process and on the people he was picking and their qualifications. And he's like, no one's ever done that before. Well, first of all, I don't know whether that's true. But second of all, I don't really think that's out of bounds to be asking those questions. Well, right. If it is true that no one's ever asked questions, then there's something wrong. Then, (laughs) then what you saw here, and this is a significant thing. This is a way to understand this. Then what you saw here was a county board that has not been doing all the stuff it should do, stepping up, right? That it's, for whatever reason, in whatever, you know, moment, um, it's beginning to assert itself. And you and I talk about this a lot at, a, at another level altogether, and that's as regards the Congress of the United States, on issues of war and peace, and on a host of other things. You know, I've been highly critical of the U.S. Congress for not asserting itself, for not you know, coming forward and saying to presidents, no, you can't do this. You have to have the approval of Congress. That's pretty much the whole history of Russ Feingold's service in the U.S. Senate was trying to teach that lesson, right. trying to say that, you know, these are co-equal branches of government and you as an imperial president can't do whatever you want. All right. Now, and, let, and I want because I have limited time, I want to switch to it. the next topic here. This is uh, from ABC. Here's John Carl. New revelations today that billionaire Republican megadonor Harlan Crow paid for the private school tuition of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's grandnephew, who the justice raised as a son. No comment today from Justice Thomas, who has called Crow a dear friend. But the billionaire did acknowledge paying the tuition, saying he has, quote, been passionate about the importance of quality education and giving back to those less fortunate, especially at-risk youth. ProPublica says they've uncovered evidence Crow paid for tuition at two different private schools. And while the exact amount is unknown, the cost of one of the schools was $6,000 a month. Thomas did not reveal any of this in his financial disclosure reports. This comes after ProPublica reported that the same billionaire donor took Thomas and his wife on lavish vacations, including travel on a private jet and a superyacht. Thomas didn't disclose those either or the fact that Mr. Crow also bought Thomas's mother's house. The reports have prompted Democrats to call for new Supreme Court ethics rules. The reputation of the Supreme Court is at stake here. Other justices have faced ethics questions. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, for example, was criticized for not recusing herself from a case involving a publisher that paid her over $3 million to write her books. Unlike Thomas, however, Sotomayor disclosed that income. And even though some Republicans say Thomas is being unfairly singled out, there is rare bipartisan agreement on one thing. Those fact patterns should be something that the Supreme Court should look at and figure out what they should do to update their ethics. All right, so John. So, you know, what's even remarkable about this, John, first of all, uh, we have a king being installed this weekend who has to show more accountability than the United States Supreme Court. There's more accountability to the monarchy than there is this body. 
And worse, all nine members signed a letter basically saying, leave us alone. Those included the liberal justices, John. It's a disaster. Look, look, what you just played had so much material in it that could that could be a two-hour podcast right I know. there just dissecting well you know, and, all and, that and stuff, since that right? story happened we now have the kelly gone kelly and conway story where she's funneling money to jenny thomas from the hair from uh the oh, federalist society yeah and that's that's a whole and that's that's the initial impeachable scandal right there by the way you know and it, it actually goes back to 2000 when jenny thomas was doing um, cabinet and uh, staff selection work for the Bush-Cheney team at the time when the Supreme Court was deciding whether Bush would get the advantage over Gore in the Florida recount, and Thomas did not recuse himself, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, this is, this is, we're now 20, almost 25 years, probably more if you go back to stuff in the 1990s, with huge problems with Thomas and... And the as the door opens on Thomas, we start to see stuff with other justices as well. And you're right, this thing of, you know, don't bother us, whether you're a liberal, conservative, Democratic pick, liberal, or, you know, Republican pick, whatever. This is a mess. The Supreme Court, which now has an approval rating, you know, I would, I would ex- imagine like slightly less than, than the monarchy does in the U.S., um, you know, is, is literally collapsing, right? And, and, this is on, you know, Thomas, who we talk about a lot, but it's also on the rest of the court because they, as a group, as, as a whole, and this is on John Roberts, they could have asserted ethics at some point, right? They could have said, even if Thomas was resistant to it, you know, there's more of them than there is of him. And, and they chose not to. They, they've chosen to go this, this, you know, awful, destructive route. Well, and it is a reminder to you, it's a reminder to all of us, that the court needs radical reform. It needs to change. And and its leader is an uh, incredibly weak man. Yeah, he's unassertive, and he sort of, you know, look, he was he had a certain moment in history when people thought, well, he might, you know, as the Trump come along, he thought he might be the balance between the right and, and the left and, you know, kind of assume a, a moderating role uh, out of respect to the court. But he didn't use it well, right? And he hasn't used it well. And now the court is... is Almost on a daily basis, being delegitimized, and and I mean the 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 extent of this, you know, it isn't just by the individual instances of wrongdoing, right, and things that weren't reported. It's the it's the lavishness of what we're talking about, you know, million multi million dollar contracts, uh, you know, yachts and private jets, a private school site. You you saw what this, what this private school cost, right? That, that Crow was paying for. $6,000 a month. I see I mean, that Clarence Thomas can't, can't even buy his own tires. Somebody buy <laughs> the tires I mean, for this car. Do you pay for your own tires? I've always paid for my own tires. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm driving on, you know, I, I probably got to go pay for some new ones pretty soon. Um, and, and you know, look, it, it's, I think there's something healthy about what's going on. You know, ProPublica is going to get the field surprise for this, right? You know, let's, let's be clear, and they deserve it. I think there's something very healthy that's going on. This is like the Wizard of Oz. It's like when, you know, when Toto pulls away the curtain and we see mm-hmm. who's you know, behind there. Um, you know, we're starting to see the reality of the Supreme Court. Those of us who wanted to reform the Supreme Court for a long time, and I wanted to reform the Supreme Court before I was born, 
because I was I'm a, of the Robert and LaFollette tradition. And LaFollette said Supreme Court justices should be, it should be possible to recall them, right, from a, by petition, the same way you recall anybody else. Um, and LaFollette had, you know, great disdain for the Supreme Court. So I'm multi-generationally not a fan of this thing. But I have come to the conclusion, like Russ Feingold and other people, that, you know, the court just needs to be reformed. And it's, by the way, it's not hard. You can, you can expand the court right now. Um, there are all sorts of things you can do to change this court. And my only fear is that the response of Congress and of Biden to this will be, oh, that it's too controversial to take this on. It isn't too controversial. It's totally appropriate to talk about impeaching Clarence Thomas and anyone else and who I, you know, was involved in massive ethics violations. Uh, this uh, has become a very hilarious clip uh, over the last month or so. Any problem with going to Europe, but I prefer the United States, and I prefer seeing the regular parts of the United States. I prefer going across the rural areas. I prefer the RV parks. I prefer the Walmart parking lots to the beaches and things like that. There's something normal to me about it. I come from regular stock, and I prefer that. I prefer being around that. Pretty hilarious. Something normal about that. The Walmart parking lot. <laughs> When's the last time he stepped foot in a Walmart parking lot? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing about life. Um, people who talk about how normal they are, right? Is that, that usually like a, uh, the red flag goes up? It's a red flag because normal people yeah. just don't even, they don't, they just live when their they life. Well, they live their life and they don't, they don't necessarily, like, they're not priority. They're saying, yeah, I'm normal, right? I mean, what are the good things about the United Kingdom? For what it, And I'm, you know, not going to preach too many good things about the United Kingdom today because I'm anti-monarch, and so, you know, I'm not big on Charles. But, um, but one of the good things about the United Kingdom is that they do have an understanding of the working class. Like, people will say there proudly, I'm, I'm a working class person. And that has meaning. But the notion of I'm a normal person, right? I mean... No, I, I don't actually think that that uh, that when our elites and our powerful folks run around talking about how normal they are, um, that anybody buys it, um, either you know in, in in context, right, or as regards that individual. Farcical. All right, we'll be back. <laughs> John Nichols, SliesOffice.com. I want to thank all the labor unions here in Dane County that help keep SliesOffice.com up and going so you keep up to date, whether it be the Madison Firefighters, Local 311, or the Madison Teamsters, Local 695, or our friends at Madison Teachers Incorporated. These are some of the most active local unions who organize, 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 and constantly stand up for workers. Thank you from SliesOffice.com. When you're looking for a new computer or need help with one you already own, call 231-8000 and Madison Computer Works will get things up and running for you. Madison Computer Works, computers that work for you. We're back at SliesOffice.com. Joining, uh, by the way, this segment brought to you by Madison Computer Works and also our friends at Jeff's Guitar Clinic. So uh, there's so many trials and so many things. Go Well, there's only one trial, but there's so many different things that are on the precipice for former President Trump. But this was an unusually big one yesterday. 
Prosecutors called them the key instigators of the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol. American citizens are storming the Capitol. After a three-month trial, a jury tonight has found five members of the notorious extremist group The Proud Boys guilty of most of the charges against them. Four of the five defendants, including the group's former leader, Enrique Terrio, were convicted of seditious conspiracy, a Civil War-era law making it a crime to violently resist the authority of the U.S. government. Four were convicted of trying to obstruct the certification of President Biden's Electoral College victory. And all five were convicted of interfering with the duties of members of Congress, many of whom found themselves running for their lives on January 6th. Today's verdict makes clear that the Justice Department will do everything in its power to defend the American people and American democracy. The evidence coming in some cases from the defendant's own mouths. January 6th will be a day in infamy. The significance of the verdict in this case definitely goes not only to these defendants, but to others as well in other investigations. Prosecutors have not established that the Capitol attack was planned in advance, but told jurors the defendants set out that day to act as Donald Trump's army, trying to illegally keep the former president in power. Stand back and stand by. Citing that infamous comment during a 2020 presidential debate. I've been told that the Proud Boys membership tripled after the president said that during the debate. So Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, do you think he is working over Roger Stone or others? Uh, obviously, they're the ones that know whether there was coordination between the president and these groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and look, it, you heard Merrick Garland in that clip say, you know, we'll go to any end. We'll go to we'll go to whatever length. I mean, that's the key. Right. Um, you know, convictions of individuals who were you know, involved in incidents at the Capitol. What I've always said is, you know, if they committed a crime, yeah, that's, that's you know, important, stuff like that. But, but what needs to be understood is that we need to be looking up the food chain, if you will, up the ladder. And, um, and that's obviously looking toward Trump. And so you, you want to find uh, where that evidence is. And, and Jack Smith was brought in because he's a skilled prosecutor, and I assume he is doing that. But you know, this is this is problematic is the time that it has taken, right? You know, we're we're years on now, and the energy, the concern about an incident dissipates over time, and uh, and I think there is a sense of urgency because um, Donald Trump is about to run for president of the United States again. He's a right to run for president, right? That is that is certainly with, within the realm, um, but there is a need to know. You know, the extent to which Donald Trump uh, sought to derail democracy uh, when he was previously president of the United States and abused his office in the most profound ways. And I've said this to you before, so I, I go back to this core premise. I think Donald Trump desperately needed to be impeached, right? I think he needed to be impeached the first time, not the second time, the second time as well. But, but, and Congress, House did its job. A lot of senators did their job. You got to 57 senators, but not sufficient. And so, you know, now we're still in this, this, you know, kind of gray area as regards, you know, what Trump did, what he knew, when he knew it, and things of that nature. And I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of frustration with the Department of Justice uh, for not, you know, getting to the bottom of this uh, with, with more of a sense of urgency. 
And of course, we have a United States Senate senator that very well could be complicit in all this. Well, I mean, that's it's, it's still a very gray area with Ron Johnson, isn't it? You know, I mean, I think aren't we still trying to figure out how many seconds, minutes, or hours he spent, you know, on on questions of how to overturn this thing, right? Because remember, he said oh, I only talked to these people for you know a tiny amount of time, and then it kept expanding. Do you remember that? Exactly, the fake elector thing. Yeah, and and so we've got we have a real lack of clarity rooting back to Ron Johnson on these issues. And, you know, again, uh, it's what Johnson did, what Josh Hawley did, what a number of these other people did, led to circumstances where the major daily newspapers in their states have said they shouldn't be in the Senate. You know, there were calls for Johnson to resign. There were calls you for You can Hawley put Ted Cruz in that category as well. Of course, now yeah. he, now he, Ted, now he is a, coming out about Ted. Yeah. And he is a serious challenger now. Yeah, he does. And also there's more revelations about, you know, him kind of trying to play it both ways and stuff on, on these exact issues and a host of other things. And that's the bottom line truth. Ted Cruz faces a serious challenger in a presidential year in a changing Texas, right? And uh, I will tell you, that, that Texas Senate race, I think that uh, that it is that's going to become a primo Senate race, and and it's important too because as you know, in 2024, the Senate seat, the way that the play goes, the Senate seats tend to favor the Republicans. The Republicans have fewer seats up. The Democrats have more seats up. Uh, it's coming off a play out of the 2018 election, which is pretty good for the Democrats, and so as a result, you're going to have to look at places around the country beyond the usual uh, territory. Right, because West, I think Texas, West Virginia yeah. is probably gone. So, yes. Very probably. Because yeah. and, uh, and Pierce's tough, own tough Jim, Jim Justice is going to run against Joe Manchin. Uh, I suspect Manchin won't run for re-election. So. Maybe Manchin will run for president. <laughs> you know, talk of that. Oh, uh, there we, yeah, there's a big, big, he's got a big base nationwide. I want to get that. Still wanna, I still want to, as a collector, I want to get that campaign pin. <laughs> All right. Finally, obviously, uh, since a racist video by a UW Madison student yeah. was released, uh, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of angry people on campus. This is from Channel Three. Thousands of UW Madison students today gathered in protest, marching around campus. There was a very racist and dehumanizing video that was created by a UW-Madison student. Um, this video was extremely harmful to black students here on campus and the black community as a whole. After a viral video of a white female UW-Madison student spewing racist language, students are taking action. Really make our voices heard and make our um, mission known. That mission includes a list of demands the group delivered to the chancellor, including more money for multicultural spaces, a 24-hour hate crime hotline, and more. Because as they told me, this is not a one-time incident. It's about experiences that us black students have felt throughout our whole experience here. We are here today because we want black students to not have to face reoccurring racial injustices at the hands of UW-Madison and allow for nothing to go down. The group wants to see the student expelled. The school says they can't expel the student who spewed racial slurs and glorified slavery. But that's not stopping students who marched most of campus today, including shutting down University Avenue for 30 minutes. I believe this will keep going and we're not done and this won't get swept under the rug and something will be done about this. 
Well, uh, if the UW were to expel this student who did this on their time and their own platform, uh, Wisconsin would face a major lawsuit. Most yeah, certainly. Cha- yeah, this is a challenge that the administration faces at this point. I, I find it hard to imagine that the student won't decide to withdraw um, because this is, you know, such a, a damning circumstance. And uh, and so I, I I would suspect that that's, that's how, how this ends. I don't mean to be insensitive, but there are 45,000 students, you know, connected with that campus. There's always going to be racists going to the UW, just looking at the numbers. And I, I don't, I, here's the, here's the thing that I, I'm not sure anybody's bringing up. If you start expelling people for their speech off campus on platforms and that sort of situation, this could very well come back to be used to expel African American students who make controversial statements, or that's, or white students of all of all right. people of all backgrounds and all opinions. And of course, that becomes that becomes a challenge in this situation. Although I think as you, the interview in that clip that you had from that young woman, um, you'll notice that that she was speaking about a set of specific demands to try and address racism on campus and to try and educate about it and provide, you know, vehicles to deal with it. And I think that's a, a really good way to go at it. Look, the, the university has responsibilities to try and make the, make the campus work uh, as best it can. And, and there, is, there are a lot of interventions that, you know, frankly, the students have been asking for that make a lot of sense, right? And so um, hopefully the administration... Uh, you know, finds a way to, to kind of work with folks on this thing because uh, this is, look, it, it is unsettling. And you're right that there's always going to be, you know, a range of opinions on campuses and there's going to be people No, I, no what I said is there's always yeah. going to be racists on campus because, yeah. the, you know, the, you know, the UW is not hermetically sealed from the rest of society. Mm-hmm. As, yeah, it, but they... But they can do more to try and make sure that um, that the worst expressions of society um, are are responded to. I with what they what is their mission, right? Their mission is to educate, right? To bring people hopefully to a, a better place, right? Um, to get toward truth, um, and frankly, also you know, you remember, people come to the university often come there as young as seventeen years old. Um, and uh, there is a, a duty to make sure that the space they come into is one where they can freely express opinions, but also where they are, you know, there's an element of, of you know, protection. And, well, and but, here's like my, but here's my concern. You know, Robin Voss is going after the diversity programs at the UW. I, I kind of mm-hmm. wish the students were going after Robin Voss right now. But here's my well, here is my concern. I, I think young people in many cases have a very different view of that that they're harmed by speech and they need to be protected from it in, in some cases by isolating themselves because one of the demands some of the black student unions has made student union has made over the years is to have separate dorm floors and separate wings. And that kind of defeats the whole point of the UW uh having a diverse student body where people can interact with one another. 
Yeah, but on the, I will say on the campus, you've always had you know kind of safe places for for different groups. Right? Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with reality. that. I don't agree with that at all. And I think it, I think it, it damages the argument of why we have affirmative action and why we have different groups of people. If everybody separates from themselves in their safe space, how do you ever get people that disagree with each other to interact? Yeah, but I don't think. I don't think the students are really saying that they want to separate themselves off altogether. Well, I just told I you, I am, I am uh, telling you, yeah. yes, no, I think they are. I, 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 I really, truly think they are, John. We might differ here because I, I think they're, what they're saying is they want spaces where they can come together and, you know, feel a sense of this of whole, security. the whole safe space thing drives me up the wall. Look, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Is, is you know sounds simplistic, but there is something to that. I think words can hurt pretty badly. Yes, and, they may. Yeah, you know, but that is, you know, I'm sorry, <laughs> that is the reality in the United States right now. That's that's life, and you're going to have to live in that world. When you leave the University of Wisconsin, you're not going to some utopia out there, are you? Uh, of course not. But I do think the efforts to see make you us, and I, you and I completely see you and I completely look at this situation differently. I, I, you know, as a parent of a UW student, right? Oh, um, you're playing that is, card on me now. Is, okay, no, <laughs> and who is pretty assertive, right, and a really strong individual, right? Um, I, I still think that uh, there is a, a strong argument that instead of narrowing the options for making the university experience work, we should expand it, right? And yeah, there are going to be places where, where people uh, are going to want to have you know, some sense of security. There are going to be places where people are going to want to be in challenging circumstances. And, you know, look, the university experience is one that ought to be a place of growth, right? And there are a lot of ways to, ways to grow. Um, I just think that the administration here, and I don't know where this is going to sort out. I, I, I don't know where. Well, look, but I think I, it's valid to listen to students who are saying, you know, look, we are having a hard time with this. And we want the administration to look for avenues for ways to respond to it. Um, well, I'm not sure that's the administration's job to censor speech. Uh, furthermore, well, I, and, and here's, here's the other, here's the other component of what I'm seeing. Well, I, that's what they're asking for. They're asking for censorship. Booting somebody off campus is censorship, John. Uh, the other thing that I find troubling at, at schools around the country now is that when controversial speakers come, they get shouted down and, or they they demand that this person not speak on campus. I see this kind of, I don't know if we don't teach civics anymore, but if the university is going to be an interesting place, we've got to have diverse views. You do have to have diverse views. And, and you know, this is, this is one thing I, I, I get upset by because the, I mean, who was the conservative candidate for the state Supreme Court? I, believe, I can't remember his name. Dirty Dan <laughs> Kelly. Oh, that's our fellow, right? Would you say that Dan Kelly was a controversial figure? Yes. He spoke on campus, you know, shortly before the election without any problem. Well, I'm not saying, I'm not saying there aren't cases where pe people... Well, no, what I'm saying is it's totally, 
so do but so there are, are but, but there but we speakers. we've obviously seen cases where high profile people come to town and then they get disrupted and yelled off the stage and i i you know wh- whoever is doing that i just think they're i think they're diminishing the experience you know sometimes letting people say stupid things is your best weapon to actually winning the argument of course and learning and learning to have that back and forth right when somebody is saying something stupid, let them say it and then counter it. And, and that's it, right? That's, you know, that's that classic sifting and winnowing concept that is at the, at the root of UW. And I'll remind you that, that if you know the whole history of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, you'll know that there were times when leftist speakers were shouted off stages or when there were efforts to prevent them from speaking on campus. Uh, that happened well, in the it's, 50s and the early 60s. It's, it's why... Former Senators Lynn Edelman and Russ Feingold uh, disagreed with Jim Doyle on some of when he was attorney general on some of the hate speech stuff. And they always reminded <laughs> Attorney General Doyle that the first hate speech law in Wisconsin was used against black men in Racine. Yeah, I look, one of the things to understand about about this is that that as a society, what we want is to have a lot of honest discourse. Right, and we want it to be. Well, that's what people say. And, yeah, but yeah. but I I genuinely think that it is a good thing. Um, the the challenge now is to find ways to do that. Right, that that you know kind of you know are not just done for the sake of provocation. Right, to but are actually done to have an, an honest discourse. And what I will suggest to you is that at, on the University of Kansas, Wisconsin, Kansas, there are. There is more honest discourse going on than they get credit for. And um, I think that Robin Voss and Steve Nass and other people have gone out of their way to try and create the impression that there's like a you know, constant silencing of the discourse. And that is Well, of course, right wingers are going to manipulate these situations. And that's why I am so concerned that we not give them ammunition. I got to wrap things up. John Nichols from the Capital Times, thank you for coming on Sly's Office today. It is always a pleasure to be with you. Sly'sOffice.com. Thanks a million. Bye-bye.